everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, the podcast brought to you by AdvaMed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, president and CEO of AdvaMed. And today we're pleased to have with us Dr. Lucy Frazier, a board certified toxicologist with over 30 years of experience. With over half of medical devices and technologies sterilized in the U.S. using ethylene oxide, she will provide a valuable science-based perspective on the unfounded controversy surrounding these facilities that are absolutely critical to the health of millions of patients worldwide. Dr. Frazier specializes in air quality health evaluations and has worked in both the public and private sectors. Now, as an independent consultant, she works with clients, including local governments, with ethylene oxide sterilization facilities in their communities. Dr. Frazier has also testified before the Illinois House and Senate and has provided detailed presentations to community members, local regulators, and the EPA on this critical sterilization method for medical technologies. I look forward to hearing what she has to say about working in and living near these facilities. Lucy, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, we brought you here today because EPA recently released a list of 23 plants across the country that use ethylene oxide to sterilize medical devices. And we're curious, why do you think EPA did that? Why did they publish this list? Well, EPA is working on a rule or a new rule to regulate these sterilizer facilities. And in August, they released this list of 23 sterilizers that based on a risk assessment that EPA performed, pose a cancer risk of 101 million or more. Okay, yeah, let's take a step back. And for those who are listening that might not fully understand what ethylene oxide is, tell us what that is exactly and how it's used. Ethylene oxide is used to sterilize critical medical devices that are both moisture and heat sensitive, which means that they can't be sterilized via steam. Ethylene oxide is used to sterilize 50% of all medical supplies that require a high level of disinfection. That includes everything from plastic surgical gowns, syringes, catheters, bandages, gauze, and even things like pacemakers and hardware for knee replacements. That's a long list of medical items. Essentially everything that's in the hospital or the doctor's office would be sterilized by ETO, it seems like. And it makes me wonder what would happen, right, if we begin to shut down ETO uh, sterilization plants across the U.S. today? Well, we'd have a medical device shortage. In fact, we've had a shortage in the past when a single plant was shut down. And if we had a medical device shortage, that would certainly lead to surgeries being postponed or canceled across the country. The reason why that would happen is that there are a lot of medical devices that can only be sterilized with ethylene oxide because other methods of sterilization damage the items themselves. For example, medical equipment made from plastic or paper or even cloth. Another thing about ethylene oxide that is really beneficial for sterilization is that it can 
penetrate through most types of packaging and it can penetrate through many layers of packaging. And so what that means is that device makers can sterilize whole pallets of hospital supplies at the same time without ever having to unwrap them. Mm. But such a, it sounds like such an important component of our medical system. It would be tragic to see it shut down so many plants, a rule that comes out of EPA. But it does also beg the question, Lucy, even if you did shut down all the plants in the U.S., what impact would it really have environmentally on the communities? It wouldn't have much impact at all on the amount of ethylene oxide that's in the air around us. Because there are many, many sources of ethylene oxide besides sterilization facilities, ethylene oxide is present in the air all around us and across the entire United States, even in areas that are nowhere near a sterilization plant. Because of its presence in the air everywhere, the amount of ethylene oxide in air near sterilization plants isn't substantially different from the levels that we see anywhere else in the United States. If it's everywhere around us, where is it coming from, really? I read a study recently that suggested even in places in rural areas where there's no manufacturing or other places like state parks and things of that nature, ETO is still present. So where does it come from and why is it all around us the way it is now? Yeah, you're exactly right. It has been found in rural areas. And in fact, we don't really see levels in rural areas that are substantially different from suburban areas. It's in the air all around us, but it's not because of sterilization plants. There are many, many sources of ethylene oxide besides sterilization facilities. Those include trucks, buses, 18-wheelers, charcoal grills, generators, basically anything that burns fuel. Maybe even more importantly for the rural areas, ethylene oxide is also emitted by trees and by decaying vegetation. So that's likely a big part of why we see it in rural areas. There's no commercialization or industrial activities. With so many everyday sources, it's in the air all around us across the United States. Again, as I mentioned, it's present in areas that are nowhere near sterilization plants. And the amount of ethylene oxide that's in air near sterilization plants isn't substantially different from the levels that we see anywhere else across the entire United States. And in fact, Ethylene oxide in the air is actually a very small fraction of our daily exposure to ethylene oxide. And that's because our own bodies even produce ethylene oxide. Mm. And our exposure to ethylene oxide from our own bodies is actually much higher than our exposure to ethylene oxide in the air around us. And the contribution of ethylene oxide from these sterilizer plants is even smaller. That's fascinating as you explain that. It makes you wonder a little bit whether or not EPA is taking into account this basic science component of it as they're thinking about that rule. Do you have thoughts on that? They feel that their obligation is to talk about the ethylene oxide that's coming from sterilizers because those are the facilities that are being impacted by the rule that EPA is working on right now and that is due out later this year. EPA has also indicated that, you know, it worries about talking about the high background levels of ethylene oxide because they don't want to 
unnecessarily scare the public. And they've also indicated that they don't have a lot of confidence in the data on background levels. But the problem with that approach is that if the public hears that they're at risk from facility emissions without hearing that ethylene oxide in the air is already higher than the ethylene oxide that's contributed by the sterilizers, they're understandably going to be more alarmed than if they knew that ethylene oxide was in the air all around and that the exposure to ethylene oxide in air is nothing new. It's been going on for decades. Is there a level, Lucy, when you would say people should be worried about how much ETO they're exposed to and for how long? There is not a need for concern about ethylene oxide levels either inside of sterilization plants or in the outdoor air today. In the past, sterilization plants and chemical plant workers were exposed to very high levels of ethylene oxide that were anywhere from 10,000 to a million times higher than what's inside plants or in the air today. And there is some evidence that at those extremely high levels that ethylene oxide can increase the risk of cancer. But those very high ethylene oxide levels are the ones that have been linked to increased cancer, not the much lower levels that we encounter today. And in fact, there's not a single study out there to suggest or show that the levels of ethylene oxide that are present in the air today are capable of causing cancer in anybody. The other thing is EPA can't eliminate ethylene oxide exposure, again, because it's all around us in the air and it's also inside us. You know, so I'm not saying that ethylene oxide shouldn't be regulated at all, but EPA can't substantially influence ethylene oxide exposures by shutting down the plants that use it to sterilize medical equipment. Yeah, so it sounds like, Lucy, from the way you've explained that, people in areas where there are facilities shouldn't be really all that worried about being exposed to too much ethylene oxide or maybe not at all. Is that right? That's right. In my opinion, people even living near these sterilization plants don't have anything to worry about. The exposures that are experienced by people living in communities around these facilities aren't substantially different from exposures of people anywhere else in the United States. And there are many orders of magnitude lower than the levels of ethylene oxide that have been linked to increases in cancer. Again, those in those worker studies where workers were exposed to levels that were anywhere from 10,000 to a million times higher than what we see in the air. Yeah, I'd be surprised if EPA has data that you're not aware of, given your expertise in this area. But why do you think EPA is so concerned or suggesting to people in those areas that they should be so concerned when you think about those 23 plants? I think that EPA is too focused on what they believe their obligation is, and that's talking about the potential ethylene oxide risk from sterilizer facilities. Because again, those are the facilities that are the focus of the rule that they're working on. But, you know, just focusing on the emissions from sterilizer plants is sort of like being on a diet and only looking at the calories 
that you consume before noon. It's not telling right. the whole story. It ignores right. very important exposures from other sources, including exposures to ethylene oxide that's produced in our own bodies. And what makes the exposure to ethylene oxide that our bodies naturally produced an important consideration is that the ethylene oxide that's produced internally comprises the vast majority of our daily exposure. In addition, EPA generally agrees that the body can prevent or repair damage that occurs from levels of chemicals that are naturally made by the body because our natural defenses have evolved to take care of those. So this makes it very unlikely that exposure to the low levels of ethylene oxide that we find in ambient air today would cause cancer. Yeah. I read something recently, someone from EPA had suggested that the science had changed on this issue. Are you familiar with their thinking there, what might have changed? I do recall hearing someone at EPA say that, and I disagree with that. The science itself has not changed. The human data, which are the data that EPA used to develop the iris value, have not changed at all, except to the extent that newer human studies indicate that ethylene oxide is actually a less potent carcinogen, not a more potent one. EPA, when it put out this new iris value in 2016, used exactly the same worker study to develop that iris value that they used in previous years to develop less stringent ethylene oxide iris values. They did that both in 2006 and 2014. In all three of these evaluations, they used the exact same worker study. That worker study was conducted by the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH as we often call yep. it. And it looked at workers that were exposed in sterilizer plants from 1938 to 1985 when ethylene oxide exposures were much higher than they are today. EPA did upgrade its classification of ethylene oxide as a carcinogen, but in doing so, they acknowledged that there's less than conclusive evidence for both lymphoid and breast cancer in humans. And IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, actually concluded that the evidence for lymphoid and breast cancer from ethylene oxide is limited. Yeah, it seems like you're reflecting back on the history of it. That's really helpful. But it seems like maybe four or five years ago, something happened to elevate EPA's concern over ETO emissions. Is that right? And do you know what that might have been? Yes, I think I do. The main thing that has happened is that in 2016, EPA, during one of its routine evaluations of the iris value, updated its ethylene oxide cancer potency. And when they did that, they increased its potency by 30 to 50 fold. But this apparent increase in the carcinogenic potency was entirely due to a change in the model that EPA uses to predict the cancer potency of ethylene oxide. It wasn't based on any new science suggesting that ethylene oxide is a more potent carcinogen than previously thought. In fact, as I think I mentioned a moment ago, the newer studies or the follow-ups from the older studies actually indicate that ethylene oxide is a less potent carcinogen, not a more potent mm -hmm. carcinogen. So 
As I said, the actual data used to estimate ethylene oxide's cancer potency hasn't changed at all. There's always a lot of argument and discussion about which mathematical model is the best one to use for predicting cancer potency. But in this case, the model that EPA used to come up with its 2016 iris value for ethylene oxide didn't fit the worker exposure data any better than the more conventional models, the models that they've used in the past and that are still being used by other regulatory agencies to estimate cancer potency. The thing to understand about these models that EPA and other regulatory agencies use to estimate cancer potency is that they're very uncertain. These models are driven by many, many assumptions. So it's important that people understand that. And the other thing is that the models are intentionally designed to be conservative, which means that right. they intentionally overestimate risk. Yeah. Let me bring uh, Greg Christ, our head of external affairs, into the conversation for a few minutes as well. And Greg, you know this issue very well. You know the industry very well and the plants that are being used across the country, frankly, around the world as well. We know from talking to Lucy and from other conversations we've had that shutting down even one of the plants would be a huge problem for the medical system broadly. But what about other methods of sterilization? Can companies just shift from ETO over to steam or radiation or other forms of sterilization? How does that work? Yeah, and thank you for having me, Scott and Lucy. It's it's great to have your expertise as a toxicologist to sort of balance what's occurring out there and the awareness among the public. But Scott, when you talk about alternate modes of sterilization, every agency that regulates this industry, FDA, those under HHS, BARDA, and others have asked that question. Are there other alternates and are they as effective? And the short answer to that is no, not at least in the short term, maybe something 10, 15 years down the line. But as it stands now, in order to disinfect these medical devices, particularly with the level of sophistication, the on-off switches, all the intricate details of electronic devices and including surgical kits, et cetera, you really need the lethality that comes with ethylene oxide to kill and to remove those microorganisms. FDA has asked that question. They've studied it with our environmental and health specialists that are on our member teams. And the short answer to that is no, not in the short term. Yet here's the good news. We are looking at modalities and other chemicals that can ensure the safety of these devices for patients. But that timeline is about 10 to 15 years down the line, and, and we are exploring it, though. Greg, given that, if you shut down one of these plants or multiple plants throughout this country or around the world, the challenges that will create in shortages in hospitals and supply chains is going to be crucial and critical, right? to hospital operations and for patients who are waiting on these technologies. Did I understand that right? That's exactly right. And look, it's not Greg's opinion or even Lucy's opinion. We've actually seen this and it's been unfortunately documented by the Food and Drug Administration. We saw it in Illinois a few years ago and the ripple effect was felt in pediatric surgeries, uh, mm -hmm. specifically trach tubes for pediatric surgeries. And we saw it have a ripple effect in the upper Northeast to the point where we had heads of surgery calling FDA and others 
asking why are we seeing a supply shortage with respect to these specific medical devices. So I don't want to give the the listening audience the sense that it would be across every device. But if you're talking about a facility that specializes in surgical prep or surgical kits or lung cancer surgeries, that ripple effect would begin in that local facility and emanate from there across the country. Again, this isn't my view or speculation. We've seen it occur, and that's why FDA and HHS have said it's serious enough that they need to know where these facilities are, what the facilities are sterilizing, and what type of supply line residual effects do you have? Yeah. Now, I know from earlier conversations that the med tech companies that are doing these sterilizations do a lot of work already, right? And to make sure their employees are safe, to make sure the surrounding communities are safe. Talk about that technology a little bit, Greg, and what they've done to make sure that very little, if any, is being released into the air. That's right. And, and look, this is a sterilization process that the industry has been conducting since the 1930s. This is not new to the industry. And it's also one that the industry has been refining and updating through the decades. In many respects, Scott, well before the regulation. Let me give you an example. We have a regulation that we're waiting on from the Environmental Protection Agency that was last updated in 2006. 2006. And yet we know the control technologies, the ability to abate, fancy word for saying, to capture and remove these emissions. We know the technologies have far advanced since uh, 2006. Our companies have stepped forward and before the regulation has been updated and we expect it sometime next year, they've implemented their own control technologies. We've seen technologies that can actually go in and capture the molecules, remove them to untraceable levels. So even when you see the federal regulation, which is 99%, it's called DRE, Destruction and Removal Efficiency. 99% is the standard. Our facilities are well beyond that because the technology is, and they're employing those technologies. At the same time, we've asked EPA to update the rule so that we can have that consistency across the country so that no locality or no state steps in out of concern for the residents and says, we've got to go farther. Our members have already stepped in that regard. Now, let me say a quick word about other alternatives. What are we doing now to limit? Because it is true, and Lucy, you've seen this, less ETON means less ETO out. We understand that as a principle. That's why our members are employing something called cycle optimization, which means that we can use less ETO and still effectuate the same level of sterilization. That's a good sign. It's a good thing. We've used less packaging. Lucy was right. The ETO, the ethylene oxide can penetrate the packaging, but if you use less cardboard, less Tyvek, you're actually going to have less ETO. Our members are employing that in addition to the technology. So we're hitting it on the front end through the use of ethylene oxide, as well as capturing it on the back end at the stack and drain. You know, I've heard also a lot of conversation about fugitive emissions, which is uh, the emissions that escape out of doors when they're opened while unloading trucks, things of that nature. It seems to have become more of a concern, at least in the media and some of the things that I've read, Greg, but there's a lot of work being done to even limit that, right? That's right. And, you know, this is a great example of partnering with the regulator. EPA came to us early in this review process and said, 
Hey, we are worried about that exposure as the truck leaves a facility. What are you doing to address that? And two things, very specific, because I think we need to be practical when talking with communities. And one is, and Lucy, correct me here, but I know you've been involved in this. One is actually running those warehouses, equipping those warehouses, venting those warehouses to a removal technology, an abater, as they say. So if you think about actually venting a warehouse where it's off-gassing or there are residual effects of ethylene oxide, our facilities, our members are employing technology where they run, they vent that warehouse to an abater. That's an important upgrade and collaboration we have with EPA. Another is something known as negative pressure. How do you take, so basically instead of air pushing out of a facility, the fugitive, if you will, a lot of our members are employing negative pressure where actually every time a door is open, the air will suck into the facility and run it to another abater. So these are just two critical but very practical steps that our members are employing to ensure that we eliminate these emissions to untraceable levels. Yeah. Let me come back to where we started about the rule that EPA is going to issue at some point, Greg. Where is industry on that rule specifically? Where do you stand on that question? So under the Clean Air Act, it was slated to be updated every eight years. 2006 was the last, so 2014 we were looking, nothing. And then here we are another eight years. That's not a reflection on EPA's inability. It's just simply a reflection of how difficult it is to get to a final rule here. The way we understand it, we've been working with the Environmental Protection Agency. We hope to see a draft, a proposal later this year, and a final rule, a final regulation that will have the effect across the country, which many states will need and they will look to for guidance. We hope to see that by summer of 2023. Okay, that's really helpful. So, Lucy, let me come back to you because I just want to come back to a question I asked earlier. When you see stories about ethylene oxide in communities and when you hear about rules that might be coming out and you see lists publicized about potential risk in communities, what I heard you say at the beginning is that if you live near one of those communities, you're really no more at risk than you are in many other parts of the country where there is no manufacturing. And I wanted to make sure I heard that right. And maybe you could elaborate on that again as we close out. Yes, you're exactly right. You know, if you live near one of these facilities, you're not being exposed to levels of ethylene oxide in the air that are much different from any other place in the entire United States. And one of the reasons for that is that, you know, sterilizers are not the only source of ethylene oxide. In fact, they're arguably not even the biggest source. We see ethylene oxide everywhere in areas nowhere near sterilization plants, in areas that are rural, you know, ethylene oxide is present and it's been present in our air for many decades. I mean, as long as it's been used in the chemical manufacturing process. So, you know, living near one of these plants is not a risk factor. You're going to have similar levels of ethylene oxide in the ambient air, regardless of whether you live near a sterilizer plant or not. And also, I recognize that it's a little obscure, but as I mentioned before, 
Ethylene oxide is one of those strange chemicals that our bodies actually produce naturally. Mm-hmm. So we are all exposed to ethylene oxide that comes from bacteria in our gastrointestinal tract. And the thing that's really interesting is that our exposures to these internally produced ethylene oxide levels, those levels are actually much higher than any level that we find in the air. Well, that's really helpful. And I, I really appreciate you clarifying some of these issues with us, Lucy, given your expertise as a toxicologist, a scientist. You know, we often hear the phrase, follow the science when it's relevant to public policy. I think one of the things we've learned today is the science is pretty clear. In fact, it's quite clear. And as we're thinking about new rules that may come out, we want to make sure everybody understands the science and then follows the science, the right outcome for patients. Because at the end of the day, sterilized products that go to patients in hospitals are essential to keep people safe. And all those factors, I think, need to be uh, kept in mind as we move forward. So we really appreciate your insight. And Greg, thank you for joining us today, too. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Scott. For those of you listening, thanks for tuning in. For more episodes, visit advamed.org slash podcast or subscribe to MedTech POV on your favorite streaming platform. Until next time, this is Scott Whitaker. Have a great day.